would undoubtedly be the name Abraham. He is one of the most significant figures in all of the Bible, going from the very beginning all the way to the end. And I want to give you a few passages of Scripture that make this very clear about the significance of Abraham. I just want to give you three. So the first is Exodus 3, 6. And this, you'll remember, is when uh, God appears to Moses in the burning bush. It's actually uh, not a burning bush. It's a bush that appears to be, well, it's, it's, it's burning but not being consumed by the fire. So it's not being burned up. And God appears to Moses as Moses is going to be commissioned to go into Egypt and to bring out God's people. And it's amazing that at this very pivotal moment in the history of God's people throughout the Bible, you get these words from the Lord in Exodus 3, 6. He said, God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. It's incredible to think that God attaches his name to a man. Who is God? Who is this God that we worship? He says, I am the God of Abraham. He attaches his very name to a person, to an individual guy named Abraham. So that's one example, one instance of the the importance of Abraham in the Bible. I want to give you a second one from Matthew 1.1. This is the very beginning of the New Testament. So if you're opening up your Bible and you are uh, reading at the very beginning of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, this is what you find. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we know that Abraham is significant because one of the ways that Jesus will be identified is as the son of Abraham. That's a very important way of thinking about Jesus. He's the son of Abraham. And then let me give you one more. Galatians 3.29. So Galatians 3.29, we've got the beginning of apostolic preaching. We've got the apostles out preaching to people about the message of Christianity. What is Christianity all about? Who are Christians? And this is part of that message. Paul says, if you are Christ's, listen to this, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So one of the ways that Christians are identified is as descendants of Abraham, offspring of Abraham. So every one of us in this room today who is a Christian, a truly converted Christian with a new heart from God, who's trusted Christ and repented of sin, every one of us here today who is a Christian is an offspring, a descendant of Abraham. So hopefully you can see from the burning bush through to the genealogy of Jesus, through to the apostolic preaching, we see the significance of this man, Abraham. Today, as we continue our series on Genesis, we come really to the beginning of the story of Abraham. Please go with me, if you will, to Genesis 11 in your Bible. If you have one, Genesis 11, verses 10 to 32. Yes, another genealogy. We, so maybe some of you thought, as I was saying that, 
that we are going to pick up in chapter 12, verse 1, with Abraham, God's call to Abraham, and maybe just skip over this genealogical stuff, right? Because, I mean, so many of us, we pick up our Bibles and we read them, and this is not the kind of material that we associate with, with uh, uh, motivational, inspirational material that we would encounter in the Bible. This is the kind of stuff that, okay, we'll turn the page and we'll get to something a little more edifying, something that will build us up. But that's not the case at all. This is really the introduction of Abraham. You have to read these verses and understand what is going on here, what's being prepared for here in order to really get the magnitude of the figure Abraham and of the life that he lives, of what God does in his life and of the following generations after him. So yes, we're going to do another genealogy today. If there is one image that best captures these verses, it would be that of a bridge. So what are we looking at when we come to our text for today? Genesis eleven ten to 32, we're looking at a bridge. I want you to get that image in your mind. One commentator, Gordon, Gordon Wynnum, says this. Genesis eleven ten to 26 stands very much as a bridge passage between the primeval history and the patriarchal stories. So everything we've covered so far is considered primeval history. This is ancient, ancient history. Moving now with a bridge into the story of the fathers of God's people. We are moving from Shem, the son of Noah. The very beginning of this, in verse 10, we've got a kind of flood, post-flood scene. We've got Sham. Sham was one of the eight people that God put on the ark and saved. So we go all the way from Sham, the son of Noah, to Abram, or Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. This is such a significant bridge in all of Scripture. In fact, you could open up any portion of the Bible and you would be hard-pressed to find any more significant Bridge between one portion of history or one portion of God's word to the next. Unless, of course, you're turning from Malachi to Matthew. That would be more significant. But what we have here is a significant transition. And as we come to chapter 12, we are entering into a new section in the book that will take us up to chapter 25, verse 11. So I want you to be thinking now, as we begin today, that this portion of Genesis, so yes, we're going to go all the way through Genesis. We are finishing up a portion of Genesis now. We're bridging to another portion, which will go roughly from 12 all the way to chapter 25, verse 11. And here's what we'll read there. After the death of Abraham... God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahairoi. Then the text will follow Isaac. That's, that's Abraham's son. The text will then go on at chapter 25 and follow Isaac. And then it will follow Jacob. And at the end of the book, of course, we will get Jacob's son, Joseph, whom God uses to save Jacob and his descendants out of famine and to bring them into Egypt to continue his plan. It's an amazing story. The book of Genesis is incredible. In fact, when I, some of you uh, maybe wish that I would have stayed with this idea, but when I started uh, going down the road of preaching through Genesis back when we were in the Sermon on the Mount, and I was thinking through what are we going to do next, and I was talking with the other elders, getting their counsel on that, talking with some other folks, my idea initially was to go through Genesis 1 to 11. That was it. 
And we would, we would stop at the end of chapter 11 and we would move on to something else. So some of you are thinking, man, why didn't we do that? Uh, but we're not. We are going to continue. We're going to go through. Because I want you to see the whole picture of this story. This larger story. So chapter 12 all the way up to chapter 50, verse 26. That's the end point. When we get to chapter 50, verse 26, we'll be done with Genesis. But chapter 12 all the way to chapter 50 could really be entitled this. If you're looking for a big idea for the rest of Genesis from this point forward, it's this. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what we have in the book of Genesis And there is much that we will learn about this God as we go through the remainder of Genesis. But what about our passage for today? This is the bridge, remember, before we get into all of that. What will we do with this bridge passage? What are we to take from these verses, from this genealogy of all kinds of texts? This is some of the most difficult. What are we to do with this genealogy that leads us into the story of Father Abraham. Well, I have entitled the sermon today, The God Who Prevails. The God Who Prevails. As we move from the Tower of Babel story in chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, which we finished last week, as we move from that to God's call of Abram in chapter 12, verse 1, we are witnessing, listen to this, this is the main idea really for today. We are witnessing the overcoming power of God. And we see this prevailing in several places or from several angles. So if you will look in your bulletin, you'll notice under this portion of our service that I have a little outline there for you that you can follow. And so as we look at God prevailing, as we look at the God who prevails, who overcomes, who is victorious, the gracious Victor, as we look at this, I think we see this in several places or from several angles. So I'm going to give you four of them. And this is what we're going to spend our time looking at today. So here we go. The pattern first, the second, the plan, third, the paganism, and fourth, the privation. Each of these helps us to see that our God is a God who triumphs. He's a God who prevails. And I will unpack what I mean by that as we go on. So if you will, at this time, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We believe this is God-breathed Scripture written by man, as Peter says, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Unique book. There's nothing like it in the world. This is God's perfect, infallible Word. So let's read it. Genesis 11, verses 10 to 32. These are the generations of Shem. By the way, I have to say this. Shem means name. Isn't that fascinating? I haven't said that yet. Shem means name. And remember, those associated with the Tower of Babel, what are they after? A name for themselves. And here we see That God gives a name and he is going to work through this man whose name, literally, is name. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 
500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. I just want to read those first few words of chapter 12 to put it in context. Now the Lord said to Abram. We'll just leave it there for now. You can go ahead and be seated. So let's pray and ask that the Lord would use this, even this, even a genealogy, to change our hearts. Wouldn't that be incredible? If God converted a person through the genealogy, God can do that. God uses his word. His word is powerful. The Holy Spirit uses the word as a surgical instrument in the heart of sinners to save them, to bring them to faith in Jesus, something we can't concoct on our own, a gift. He uses his word to give that gift. Would we pray that God would work in the hearts of those among us who maybe do not know him? And would we pray this morning together now that God would transform us all into Christ's likeness through his sacred scripture? Let's pray. Father, it is a wonderful privilege to be here together as your people, to pray to you as our great God. Lord, all around us, we live in a world where people are just seeking their own ends, a world filled with worship of self, self-fulfillment, self-expression, self-actualization. And Father, you call us to self-denial. Through your Son, you call us to pick up our cross, to die to ourselves, and to follow Jesus. Father, what a reminder you have given me lately. 
of the early Christian martyr Ignatius of Antioch as he, on his way to the city of Rome to be fed to lions, praises you for the privilege of bearing witness to your gospel through his awful death. Father, what a reminder as we open up the pages of the New Testament. We read of these men, Peter and John and James, Paul, who gave their lives because they trusted in a resurrected Christ. And they knew that though they be burned, crucified, or fed to wild beasts, that you one day, through your Son, would raise them from the dead and glorify them in your presence forever. Father, we praise you that this great hope lies before us. We thank you that you have called us by your grace to be Christians. We ask that we would be truly Christian in the way we live, not just in theory, not just in the abstract, Father, but that you would make us Christian in the way we speak, in the way we think, in the way we treat one another, the way we treat everyone we meet. Father, the way we turn our backs on idols, the way that we loosen our grip on the things of this world, the way that we store up treasures in heaven and not on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Father, we thank you that we have been sealed for a great imperishable inheritance that awaits us when Christ returns. Thank you, Father, for this unshakable truth, one that we can build our entire lives on, God. And we pray that even today, through this time spent in a genealogy, that you would encourage us as Christians, that we would grow in our confidence in you, the God of history, the God of redemption, and that we would turn from sin again today in a fresh way and turn to you in holiness of life and hope in Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing that we're going to look at this morning is the pattern. And this really brings us to the context for what we find here. Before we even get into the passage itself, I think it is important to pause for a moment and see where we've come from. Oh, this is so important. In other words, what is the collective impression made on the reader when he or she finishes reading verse 9 of chapter 11 of Genesis? What is the impression made on the reader when you read those last words of verse 9? I'm going to just put it in the most basic layman's terms possible. Very bad. Very bad impression. In fact, pretty hopeless on the human level. When you come to verse 9, there's a sense of exasperation with humanity, with the plight of man, with human sin, when you get to the end of this very extended passage that comes to the Tower of Babel, which we looked at in the last couple of weeks. And the best way to see, in case you, this impression has not been made on you, in case you've missed this impression, because this most certainly is what the Holy Spirit wants you to feel wants us to feel, in case this hasn't happened, the best way to see this negativity and apparent, and I say apparent, hopelessness, is to notice the pattern of sin that we have in these 11 chapters. And here's what 
I think is going on. We have a pattern that most basically looks like this. Fall, pinnacle. Fall, pinnacle. Or let me break it down a little bit more for you. We have a fall, and that is followed by an immediate outworking of that in the lives of of the next generation. And then we have that reaching a pinnacle in some kind of awful display of human sin. That's incredible. And maybe this is not something that you've seen, but I want to show you what I mean. This is a, a two, it's a pattern. It's happened twice. So we are meant to expect it to continue to happen, potentially. What I mean is this. We have in Genesis 3, Adam fell into sin. Adam and Eve, they fell. They disobeyed God, and they fell into sin. And then what happens immediately after the fall? You've got an outworking of that in the life of Cain. And this is not meant to be an isolated incident. The text does not want us to, the Holy Spirit who who inspired the text, the author who wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does not want us to think it's just an isolated incident. Because we have the fall of Adam, stay with me, the fall of Adam that leads then to the outworking of it in the life of Cain, and that carries through to this guy named Lamech. The reason for that is to show us that it's not just showing itself in Cain, it's showing itself in a trajectory forward. We have a fall. We have an immediate outworking with Cain. And then that reaches a pinnacle. See this. That reaches a pinnacle, a mounted peak in the pre-flood society. The fall of Adam, Cain and Lamech, pre-flood society. You're at a mountain peak of human depravity and sin there. And so what does God do? He destroys it. The depth of human sin before the flood is really indescribable. Yet in verse 5 of chapter 6, God describes it. And he describes it in one of the most vivid terms we find in all of the Bible. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is an incredible indictment of human sin at the time of the flood. So that's a mountain peak. That's a pinnacle. Well, then God destroys the world with a flood, saves eight people. And then what do we have after the flood? After the ark, Noah gets off and we have a kind of fall, quite literally. He falls naked, drunk, passed out. It's a kind of fall. There we have Noah and his sin. And that works itself out in the life of Ham, much like Cain. And then that continues on to this guy named Nimrod. Do you see the pattern? Fall outworking in the descendants all the way to Nimrod and then another pinnacle. What's that pinnacle? The Tower of Babel. Pre-flood society, Tower of Babel. These are mountain peaks of human wickedness very early in the Bible. But one of the striking features of this pattern is that in both cases, it is sandwiched by and pervaded by God's goodness. So what do you have at the very beginning in Genesis, before Genesis 3, before the fall? You have a gift and a blessing. What do you have before Noah's fall, so to speak? A gift and a blessing. After each pinnacle, there is God's solution to the problem. Pinnacle of pre-flood society, God floods it. And then the pinnacle of the Tower of Babel, God confuses it and disperses it. Do you see that, the pattern in these first 11 chapters. I would say this to you. If you'll just get those, that pattern in your mind, you'll have a good sense moving forward because we're moving on. 
you'll have a good sense for these chapters in the years to come. That is the pattern we are meant to see. And in the midst of it all, we see God's grace at work. But here's what I want you to see. The impression made on the reader, by the time you get to the end of the Tower of Babel story, is that God is going to have to do something very special, very particular, if the direction of humanity is to change. We've already seen God working. We've seen God's promises. We've seen his blessings. We've seen his gifts. We've seen common grace. We've seen specific grace in the life of Noah. We've seen Abel worshiping God. We've seen God already at work. But the sense is when you get to chapter 11, verse 9, at the end of the Tower of Babel, is that God is going to have to do something very particular if things are going to change. Otherwise, this repeated pattern will simply continue. There is an inevitability here. Do you feel that? The weight of that in these opening chapters of Genesis? Only God acting in a unique way can alter this depraved and disastrous course of human existence. Otherwise, Genesis has given us a pretty hopeless picture. So here's the thing. You can't do a series on Genesis 1 through 11 and then move on. That's not going to work. I guess you could. But you, could, you must end just burrowing down into the implications of chapter 12, at least before you move on. We've been left a pretty hopeless picture, but we know we have a hopeful Bible, so we have to keep going. And as we march towards Abraham in this genealogy, we realize that this is exactly what God is doing. The course of human history will change with the call of Abraham and the promise that God makes to him. And all the goodness, all the faithfulness and grace and promise that we've seen so far on a more general level, all of this will be funneled. This is incredible. All of this. We've seen a lot about God in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Constantly. We've been seeing the character of God, his nature, his attributes. All of this gets funneled right down into the life of this one man. That's how we should read the rest of the Bible. That's the reason why all those pages later, you can get Paul calling us offspring of Abraham. This is essential to our understanding of the Bible and our understanding of who we are as Christians. And I think there is an important implication for us here. I want to give you two words. Two words. Only God. That's the impression left on us here with this pattern. Only God. Our lives are like little micro versions of Genesis 1 to 11. Think about it that way. Ken prayed this earlier as we, he talked about our little babbles, the babble in our own lives, that, that what we have in Genesis 1 through 11 is shown, it shows up in a micro version in the life of every person. What do I mean by that? The pattern of sin, the inevitability of sin, the self-destructiveness of sin. And this tells us something very important that we can't ever forget. Whatever the situation the solution must come from God. It must come from Him. And not just in a general way, but God acting in a special way, applying the unique work of His unique Son to your unique life. 
Only God can change the trajectory of your life. No one else can. No new plan. No new endeavor. No new salary. No new house. No new car. No enhanced marital bliss. Nothing can change your life but God. Just like this picture of Genesis 1 through 11. Nothing can come in and rock this boat and change the direction, the course of human history, the inevitability of sin, the pattern of fall and pinnacle, but God. And that's the case in every person's life. Every single individual is in the same boat. So here's the message from this. Seek him. Ask him. Draw near to him and find God's solution in the gospel. Here's the thing that's been celebrated over the last number of years. The role of the gospel in the life of the Christian. This has been very important. You know, you've got uh, conferences like Together for the Gospel and you have the Gospel Coalition and Desiring God and other ministries that have emphasized this, I think, significantly. And that is that the gospel is not just for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that God sent his son to die for sinners. And by trusting in him, our sins can be forgiven. By grace, we have been saved through faith. That gospel is not just for the person who is unsaved and needs a sort of get out of hell card, needs to come to God and, and be forgiven of sin and enter into the family of God. But the gospel is a powerful message of God for the believer. That the believer's got to constantly go back to the truth of the gospel. Meditate on the fact that Christ has has given himself for me. My righteousness is not my own. Christ has purchased me. As As Trey talked about earlier, God has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. And Christ has given us his power. And we trust in him and not ourselves. This gospel is the lifeblood of every person. So if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Your life's just going to continue spiraling in your sin till you die. At which point you will stand before God and give an account for your sin. If you're a Christian this morning, know this, that there will be no significant change in your life. Bad habits that you hate, marital struggles that you have, whatever the issue might be, there will be no change until you get this bridge, Genesis 1 to 11 to God acting in a particular special way in your life as you seek him and ask him and rely on him alone. But now let's turn to the genealogy itself. So we've seen the pattern. Now I want you to see the plan. The plan. There is a very important observation that we need to make as we come to this genealogy in chapter 11. And it's simply this. This is a continuation of chapter 5. So really everything, this is, this is kind of, it's, it's not, I probably shouldn't use the word parentheses because everything we've covered since chapter 5 is pretty important. But in some ways, for the purposes of this genealogy, you could, you could put in a big parentheses everything that's come after chapter 5 all the way up to this point, And then you're just continuing chapter 5. I want to show you this in the text. So go back to chapter 5. You come to the end of it. I'm not going to read all of it because the pattern in the genealogy is the same. But I'll pick up in verse 25 with Methuselah. 
When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then look at chapter 9, verses 28 to 29. I want you to see, I want you to see the, the, the uh, continuity here. Chapter 9, verses 28 to 29. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And then come to chapter 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. So what we're, what we're being told here is that what we started at the beginning of chapter 5 is we had a genealogy going all the way from Adam through Seth coming down to Noah. We're picking that up with Shem and it's continuing. This is a continuation of chapter 5. Why is that important? Well, if you recall, when I preached chapter 5, this is what I entitled that sermon. The hopeful line. The hopeful line. Why did I call it the hopeful line? Well, first, Genesis 3.15. Remember the promise that God made to Adam and Eve? He said to Eve, well, he said to the serpent, but Adam and Eve are meant to hear this. Particularly Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is Satan who takes the form of a serpent and tempts, tempts Eve and brings about the fall. God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed or offspring and her seed or offspring. He, singular, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Then you come to chapter 4, verse 25. So try to stay with me. This is so important. Chapter 3, verse 15, we got God saying, look, Eve, one of your descendants is going to be the he who crushes Satan's head and undoes the fall. And then we get to chapter 4, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again. This is after Cain killed Abel. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another seed or offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. So you've got this trajectory here. You've got a, a promise of a seed. And then you have Seth being associated with that line of the seed. And then as we come to that genealogy in chapter 5, we see that people began to call upon the name of the Lord. We see that Enoch walked with God and was not for God took him. We see worship and we see life. This is a hopeful line. It is the line of the seed. That's the main thing that you need to see. So, when we come to chapter 11, we are simply continuing this hopeful line. But here, I want you to notice something interesting. There is even greater anticipation than in chapter 5 because there's the omission of some words that were in chapter 5. It's the same pattern. It's a continuation of the hopeful line, a continuation of chapter 5. But some words that were there are omitted. Significantly, I mean these words, and he died. 
So in chapter 5, you get all of these, uh, these men being mentioned. They have sons and daughters and they die. Sons and daughters and they die. Sons and daughters and they die. And then in chapter 11, you don't get those words repeated. One commentator, Alan Ross, says, Of course they died, but this section has a different emphasis. It stresses a movement away from death toward the promise. That's where we're headed. So, what does this continuity with chapter 5 tell us? And here's the big idea I want you to get. It reminds us that there is an unstoppable plan at work. God's plan in the Bible, his big plan throughout history to save people, to redeem people from lawlessness, from sin, from bondage and slavery. His plan to do that is absolutely unstoppable. Even with everything we read in these 11 chapters, sin can't stop it. Judgment can't stop it. The dispersion. I mean, here you got this image. All these people are being rattled up. Their language is being changed. They're being dispersed all over the face of the earth. Yet God's protecting this line. In the midst of all of this craziness, in the midst of all of this sin and judgment, God, the gracious victor, is protecting his plan centered on the seed. It cannot be thwarted. So here, I want to just ask this question. How should this shape our theology? This is important. I think in two ways. First, I think this is important for those who might be struggling with Reformed theology. Now, we are not a church that um, hobby, we try not to be hobby horse preaching, a hobby horse preaching church. What I mean by that is that we just sort of take these little issues here and every Sunday it's about this. Every Sunday it's about that. We're just constantly shoving down the throats of people just this message that we want to just emphasize. That's one of the, one of the beauties of expository preaching is that the text governs what you say and where you go as you go through the Bible. But I think this is important to understand. We are a Reformed church, meaning that we believe that God is sovereign in salvation. That God sovereignly chooses those whom he will graciously save. And he works in history to save them. So, so for some of you maybe who are struggling with that. And, and we, there's a spectrum among the folks who come here. I just want you to notice something. If you're struggling with that, I want you to see this. If God is this sovereign over salvation history... In the context of Genesis 1 to 11, if he's this sovereign in the big way, then certainly he is sovereign over your individual salvation. Certainly. The plans and intentions of the hearts of men do not thwart his plan. Certainly everyone's not just walking around and their choices govern God. That's not the God of this Bible. That's not the God of these chapters of Genesis. And for the Christians struggling with temptation and sin, you need to know that God will see his plan through to the end. You know, it amazed me as we were singing and Trey, both in the song and in his comments, was emphasizing the fact that Christ keeps us. You know, we didn't talk about that beforehand and we didn't plan that, but it was amazing because 
I think what we see here is that God will see his plan through to the end in your life. And undoubtedly, with, with that uncoordinated set of comments there, there's some, there's some in, in our congregation who needs to, need to hear that today, who need to hear very clearly that God will not let you go. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we get so beat down by sin and we fall and we fail and we feel constricted and constrained and we lose all hope. This is the God who saved you. This God. The God who's in control at Babel. The God who's in control at the flood. He's the God whom we call Abba, Father. John 17, 5, I do not ask, this is Jesus praying, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Christ asked that the Father would keep us in the faith. God answers that prayer for every believer. 1 Peter 1, 5, we are those who by God's power, listen to this, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Christ says, no one can pluck us from his hand. And my Father, who is greater than all, no one is able to pluck them from my Father's hand. There is such assurance in Christ. There is such assurance in the gospel. There is such hope for those of us who trust in God's unfailing, unstoppable plan both collectively and individually. So we've seen God's overcoming power in the pattern and the plan, but now I want you to see two details that come from verses 27 to 32. Look at those verses with me. Verses 27 to 32. I want to read these verses. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur, of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died. Here, the spotlight falls on this man, Terah, and his family. So here's a question we might ask. If the focus is on Abraham, why are all these other people from the household of Terah mentioned? And part of the reason for that is this is going to set up the story with Abraham. All the characters involved in Abraham's life, this is going to set up why Isaac is sent back or why Abraham's servant goes back to Mesopotamia to get a wife for his son Isaac. This is going to set up Laban, who is uh, there troubling Jacob. This is going to set up the story with Lot, Abraham's nephew. So part of the reason is it's just introducing us to key characters in the future of the story. But what I want to draw your attention to today is the unseen paganism that lies behind this family. Now this is so important and this is an incredible testimony to the power of God. 
Joshua 24.2 says this. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. It's amazing. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. And they served other gods. What? Hold on a second. This is the hopeful line. This is the holy line. And here we're being told that that Terah and his ancestors serve other gods, that they're idol worshipers, they're pagans. This is incredible. Even here, Ur and Haran were both centers of moon god worship. You tend to associate Egypt with worship of the sun god. Here we see in Mesopotamia, Ur and Haran in particular, these two places were centers of moon god worship. And we even see hints of this in the names of Sarai and Milcah. The names imply some kind of devotion to the moon god. In fact, as we'll discuss next week, God's call to Abraham happened in Ur. And it was probably at his instigation that the family left to Haran. Terah is the one said here to move the family to Haran. But we learn later, especially in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen's speech, with Stephen's sermon, we learn that God called Abram while he was in Ur. And then you see here, Terah takes the, the family to Haran, probably at Abram's instigation. Yet the impression given is that Terah holds things up in Haran. The language in verse 31, they settled there, is the same verb used in the Tower of Babel. And maybe I'm giving you too many details here. Let me come up a little bit. What I mean is that even in this text, without Joshua, we see little hints of a heart that is attached to false gods. Even without Joshua. But with that passage, it's clear. Abraham is coming up out of the context of paganism, worship of false gods. And some have suggested that this refusal to go on was associated with the unwillingness to abandon his pagan roots, that Terah would not leave Haran. And so it's only after Terah dies that Abram leaves Haran because Terah's heart clings to these false gods, the gods of Ur, the gods of Haran, the moon god. So what's the picture we're given here? Here it is. God graciously pulls Abraham out of this idolatrous muck. Isn't that incredible? This is the power of God. We're headed towards another Babel-like event. Even the hopeful line, even the holy line are said to serve other gods. Who's holy? Who's righteous at this point in world history? Nobody. And God comes in the midst of this holy line, tainted by sin, of course, children of Adam. And God comes to this man, Abram, and he pulls him up out of the muck of idolatrous paganism. God prevails over paganism. What does this tell us about our God? It tells us that his purposes prevail over every form of unbelief. There's not one form of unbelief that can withstand God's sovereign saving purposes. His power to save knows no bounds. And it can reverse generations of evil in the life of a person. 
You see this happen all the time. Missionaries go to a new land and they spread the gospel among unreached peoples. And people fall on their faces before God and they worship him. Generations and generations and generations, centuries and millennia of idol worshipers turn to the living God because God is powerful to save. His grace prevails over every form of unbelief. I want you to see this. There is much motivation here for our evangelism. There's not a single person out there that you know whom God can't save. There's not a single person that you're praying for and even grieving over whom God can't radically save and transform by his grace. Trust him and keep praying because he can do it. He can overcome unbelief. Behold our God as he tears down walls of unbelief. Finally, we come to our last point as we finish up this morning, and that is the privation. This is my, this is my favorite. This, this struck me this week as being just amazing. Here, I want to draw your attention to verses 29 to 30. This is incredible. You have to see this. Please see this. Verses 29 to 30, And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. At this point, your jaw should drop, right? Why? Because all throughout these 11 chapters, the whole point is a line. There must be a seed, There must be a continuation of this line. You read this. You know the text is bringing us by the hand to Abram. It's putting the spotlight on Abram. He's like a Seth. He's like a Noah. And then we're told that he has a wife who can't have children. This is breathtaking. If you're reading this, it's breathtaking. How? How will there be a seed when she cannot have a child? Here we're told that there is no child. There is no ability to have children. There is privation. She's deprived of that ability. She lacks the ability to conceive. And this, of course, sets us up for the power of God. Here we will learn that God's purposes will be to magnify. Listen, people of God, listen. Will be to magnify human weakness and to simultaneously magnify magnify divine strength. God is in the business of making us understand our weakness so that he can be magnified and glorified in that. He did that in the life of Paul. He did that in the lives of his people all throughout the Bible. He shows that he is the one who will accomplish it, not us. And here's the thing we need to see. This will be a plan That involves faith. Where there is human weakness, there must be faith. You know this. You know when you're going through life and you feel pretty much on top of things. And and I don't know, you you just feel like you've got it under control maybe. Maybe you never feel like you have it under control. But maybe you go through those times where you feel like things are good. Things are right. You've got everything in order. And you have control over everything. You feel strong. You feel vibrant. You feel healthy. You feel solid. 
And then you fall on your face and you realize how mushy you are, how lacking in solidity you are. Those are the moments when we realize that we have nothing apart from God and it's his strength that sustains us. Some of you have been there in in particular ways. These are the moments when we have to cry out in faith to God and trust him through that. God's people will have to trust him in the midst of their weakness. We will have to trust him in the midst of our own frailty. Abraham and Sarah would have to trust God, his promises in the midst of their frailty. They knew of the line. They would have to trust him through the barrenness. And so we come to us this morning. And I want to say this, God is often shown in our privation. Listen to this. This is how we come to know and trust in the God who prevails. It's through our weaknesses. It's not through those mountaintop moments. It's not through our strengths. It's not through through those characteristics and attributes that we tend to celebrate in ourselves. But it's through our weaknesses that God forces us to a place of recognizing that he prevails and in the end, there's nothing that can thwart his plan. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for reminding us this morning that you overcome sin, you overcome human folly, you overcome human obstacles, human inability, human weakness. You overcome unbelief, idolatry. You are a God in whom we can trust. Father, you are a God who has great power to sustain us, to save those who do not know you. You are a God who has demonstrated this from the very beginning. And Father, We thank you for this reminder this morning that you are a God who prevails. As we come to consider Abraham next week, we thank you that Abraham is part of your big answer, but not because of Abraham, but because of his seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for him, Father. We thank you that he is the son of Abraham. And we thank you that through him, the seed of Abraham, we come to be partakers of of your household, of your family, through trusting in Jesus. We thank you for your promises, God, and we trust that you will sustain us. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.